a letter that is written to the suffering church, which is in Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. If you do not have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Follow along as I read. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's a danger of distance in this text. What I mean is this. We are so far removed, many of us, from the kind of suffering that this text describes that if we are not careful, we will relegate it to a place of irrelevance as if it were only applicable to those believers living long ago or far away. We may be lulled into thinking that this text only has relevance for those Christians in Pakistan or Iran or North Korea or Nigeria or Syria. Those places where believers live every day under the constant threat of persecution and death. But that would be a tragic mistake. By way of introduction this morning, I want to show to you that what Jesus says at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, has eternal relevance for each and every one of you this morning. And I want to give you four reasons why. Number one, all suffering is tribulation. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that all suffering is persecution, which is suffering because of your faith. But all suffering is tribulation. It is an assault upon your faith. In all suffering be it physical or emotional or psychological or spiritual, be it cancer or Parkinson's, grief or loss, depression or schizophrenia, doubt, despair. All suffering is a testing of your faith and is a temptation to unbelief. It is a temptation to distrust the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the promise of God. I, I would venture to guess that over the course of history, many more, countless more, have fallen away from the faith as a result of cancer or the premature loss of a loved one than have ever 
denied the faith as a result of persecution and death. So when Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation, you should apply those words to yourself this morning in your present sufferings. Jesus says to you this morning, I know your tribulation. And when Jesus tells them, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, you should hear that as an encouragement to you to persevere through whatever trial you are enduring or will endure. Passing the test of tribulation brings great reward. And failing the test of tribulation carries with it grave consequences. Second, in addressing the greatest sufferings, Jesus addresses all of the lesser sufferings with it. See, the church in Smyrna was already suffering for their faith. They they were already enduring poverty and slander. But Jesus tells them the heat is about to be turned up and it's going to get to the boiling point for you. Some of you will be thrown into prison and some of you are going to die. This is horrendous sufferings. Now I'm not suggesting that the tribulation which most of us have endured or are enduring or will endure is on a par with that. But in speaking to those who are suffering the greatest, he speaks to those who are enduring any lesser degrees of suffering. If those who are suffering the greatest are having their faith tested, then so are you in your sufferings. And if those who pass the test in the greatest sufferings will receive the crown of life, so will you in your tribulations. And if those who are enduring the greatest sufferings fail the test and therefore forfeit the crown of life, what does that have to say to us in our Lesser sufferings. So in addressing the greatest of sufferings, which is the authorities of the state coming into the worship gathering of the church, carting many of them off to prison and putting many of them through tortures and death, and he says to them, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What does he say to you in your illness and in your job loss? And in your tragedy and grief. Third, your suffering may actually be persecution. I remind you of Job, for whom the death of his children, the catastrophic collapse of his finances, and debilitating physical illness were all the result of satanic attack. Because of his faith. Job chapter 1. Satan comes into the presence of God and says. Job only worships you because you give him good things. You let me take away every one of those good things. And he will curse you to your face. And God gives him rain to do it. It's persecution. Job is suffering because he's a believer. 
Or what about the woman in Luke 13? The one that Jesus calls a daughter of Abraham whose back had been so crippled by Satan, he says, for 18 years. So who's to say that your tribulation isn't a similar demonic attack upon your faith? If it happened to Job and it happened to this woman, why not you? Persecution does not have to come through the state or through physical human agents. And number four, persecution is coming if it's not here already. I've said before that in this series in Revelation, God is preparing us for persecution. He's training us for tribulation. That's why we're in this book for such a time as this. Because the days are quickly approaching when persecution, including slander, economic penalties, and imprisonment will be a reality for Christians in the United States. Let alone if God so wills to call any of you to the foreign mission field where it's already a reality. And who can imagine what circumstances may bring us, any one of us, into that fateful choice between death or denial? How do you know that at your place of business tomorrow, some radicalized Muslim won't come in with an assault rifle and ask you to give an account of your faith? Who's to say that some demon-possessed man won't come through the front doors down this front aisle and start spraying bullets around? What are you going to do in that moment? Are you prepared for that kind of choice? Will you be ready to confess Christ before men even at the cost of your life? You can be sure that this message has relevance for every one of us. Now, as I mentioned last week, each of the seven letters follows the same pattern. It begins with an address to the angel of the church and with an identification of the author that is drawn from the vision of the Son of Man at the end of Revelation chapter 1. Some attribute that was revealed of the Lord Jesus Christ that is particularly suited to the congregation which he is addressing. So we read in verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now again, I take the angel of the church to refer to an angelic being who is in some manner connected to the local congregation in the same way or much the same way as they were angels who were in some way connected to the nations of the earth in Daniel chapter 10 from which I think much of this first couple of chapters is drawn. Now exactly what that connection is between the angels and the churches or why Jesus addresses a message for the church to the angel remains to me anyway something of a mystery. Smyrna is located about 35 miles north of Ephesus on the southeast coast of the Aegean Gulf. It was a beautiful city. It had a natural harbor. It had a large theater. It had a stadium. It enjoyed a world-class library. Smyrna had a close political and religious relationship with Rome, and as such, it was a center for 
what is called the imperial cult or the worship of the Caesars. One commentator, one commentator rather pointed out, quote, the fact that Smyrna was so loyal to Rome and contained a large Jewish population which was actively hostile towards the church meant that it was difficult to survive as a Christian in the city and martyrdoms for the faith were common, end quote. Smyrna is actually one of the, or the only, rather, complete city of the seven that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 that is still in existence. You can go there. You can go to Smyrna today. It's today known as Izmir, Turkey. The church in Smyrna was probably founded by Paul during his third missionary journey somewhere between 54 and 57 AD. You can read about it in Acts 19, 10, and 26. And incidentally, I would tell you that today there is actually a thriving Reformed congregation in Smyrna. I once listened to an interview with its pastor, a man by the name of Fikret Bocek, who was educated at Westminster Seminary, California, who is a faithful brother in Christ and a minister in a place where persecution is still very much of a day-to-day reality. He has suffered persecution and imprisonment, in fact, for his faith and testimony to Christ. So just for a second, I want you to try to wrap your mind around being a member of the Reformed Church in Smyrna. Imagine living under the threat of persecution. They may come at any time, and, and you may have economic penalties. They could take away your job. They could take away your possessions. They could shut down the church any time that they please. And in fact, it has happened at times before. But you can sit in a Sunday morning gathering, and the pastor can op- say, open up the Bibles to your letter. There is a letter from the risen Lord Jesus to the church at Smyrna, and you're like, that's me. And it's addressing a church that is enduring persecution, and that's me. It's one of the few congregations, in fact, I can't think of another one that still has a letter. In this letter, the Son of Man identifies himself as the first and the last who died and came to life. First and the last comes from chapter 1, verse 17, and it speaks to Jesus' divine sovereignty over all of history and over all of creation on the basis of his eternality. As the first and as the last, Jesus is sovereign over everything in between because from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything in between, the first and the last, exists by his divine will, by his divine power, and will fulfill the purpose for which he created and sustains it. Who died and came to life comes from verse 18 of chapter 1 and speaks to Jesus' triumph over death. And those two attributes, his divine sovereignty and his resurrection power, are the very attributes that the saints in Smyrna need to be reminded of as they endure increasingly violent persecution. So Jesus reminds them, I am Lord over all of history and over all of creation, and therefore nothing can befall you which does not happen by my sovereign will for your good and for my glory. The Jews who slander you and the Romans who imprison and kill you, they cannot go one inch further than I have sovereignly ordained from the foundations of the world. The very hairs of your head are numbered. They need a vision of his divine sovereignty. 
In our suffering, we are not pawns in the hands of evil men, nor are we victims of a cold and impersonal fate or circumstance. Your sufferings don't just happen. They are purposeful, and they are for your good. We are not pawns in the hands of evil men. We are saints in the hands of a loving and sovereign Savior. In a few verses, Jesus will tell the church in Smyrna that some of them will soon be killed for their faith, and he will promise to them the crown of life, which is a promise that he can only make if he has first triumphed over death and is alive forevermore, which is why he reminds them that I was dead and I am alive. He's going to promise them the crown of life, which is resurrection and everlasting joy if they remain faithful unto death. And who else but the one who has already triumphed over the grave and now holds in his hands the keys of death and hell can promise such a thing. So don't skip too quickly past verse 8 this morning. The identification of Jesus here in verse 8 is for you. In whatever tribulation, whatever sufferings, You find yourself this morning, you need to hear the words from him who is the first and the last, who was dead but has come to life. These are his words for you. And you need to hear from him three truths in particular, so that you will not fear what you are about to suffer. Truth number one, you need to hear that Jesus knows your tribulations. This is precisely what he tells the suffering church in Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 9 is a rich verse. It's full of glorious truths. And I want to spend just a moment, I want to try and mine it for some of the treasures that it contains. First, I want you to notice that their tribulation took the form of poverty. Now, this is not the usual Greek word for being poor, for belonging to the lower economic strata of society. The word that Jesus uses here is a word that is descriptive of severe deprivation. It's used, in fact, by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2 to refer to the extreme poverty of the Macedonian churches. Some have surmised that this poverty was due to the fact that in the early church, many of the Christians were drawn from the lower socioeconomic classes. Paul tells us as much. Not many wealthy, not many noble, not many great has God called into his kingdom. But that's not what's going on here. This, the context demands that this is a poverty that was the direct result of persecution. In other words, these are not just poor Christians. These Christians are poor precisely because they are Christians. People refuse to hire them. They refuse to trade with them. They refuse to do business with them because of their devotion and commitment to Christ. And I think that this is one instance of what is graphically portrayed later in Revelation 13, 17, when it says that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast and the number of its name. That's what's going on in Smyrna. They're 
enduring extreme poverty because they can't buy or sell. Because they won't bow the knee to the beast and burn incense to Caesar. The saints in Smyrna refused to participate in that imperial cult which was a test of civic loyalty and of loyalty to Rome. They refused to bow down before the image of Caesar and to confess that Caesar is Lord. And therefore they were social outcasts with whom no responsible businessman in Smyrna wanted to associate. But though they were materially poor, destitute even, they were spiritually rich. And here is a lesson that I think that we need to take to heart. According to Jesus, it is far better to be rich in faith than rich in finances. Only one currency yields eternal gains, and it is not money. So these are the words of Jesus. He tells them, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And those words blow the heresy of the prosperity gospel just right out of the water. I want you to notice that Jesus is entirely pleased with this church. In fact, this is one of only two churches in the book of Revelation to whom Jesus gives no rebuke. There is no condemnation. The other is the church at Philadelphia. He has only good and encouraging things to say of this church. Jesus simply says that they are rich, though they have nothing. Now you compare that with what he's going to say to the church at Laodicea at the end of chapter 3 who possessed great material wealth but in the eyes of Jesus were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. So the church in Smyrna was rich even though they had nothing and the church in Laodicea was poor even though they had everything. You beginning to see Jesus' view of economics? Then note that Jesus takes pleasure in this poverty-stricken church, yet makes no promise to prosper them financially. Rather, what is he going to promise them? Everlasting life. See, wealth is no sign of God's pleasure and blessing. And poverty is no sign of his displeasure or curse. So take this to heart. By God's sovereign providence, God may bless you with poverty. Which turns a prevailing notion of the way that God blesses his people on its head. By God's sovereign providence, in accordance with the persecution that I think is just on the horizon for for churches that won't throw this under the bus, like in the realm of same-sex marriage, it may be God's will that you become, that I become, that we become financially destitute. And that will be a sign of his pleasure in you. Poverty is real tribulation, and it is for the testing of your faith. So be faithful in your poverty, and Jesus will give you the crown of life. Second, notice that their tribulation took the form of slander from those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, Jesus is not saying that these 
are men who are pretending to be Jews, but they're not really ethnically Jews. No, these are true ethnic Jews. These are physical descendants of Abraham who have a synagogue in the city of Smyrna. Rather, Jesus' point is that though they are physical Jews, they are not the true people of God. And they are not the true children of Abraham. And their worship of God actually is serving the purposes of Satan. So mark this point, and it will help us to rightly interpret what is to come in the book of Revelation when we, when we see these references to Israel. This is Jesus' own description of unbelieving Jews who had rejected him as their Messiah and King. This is how God views them. With the coming of the new covenant, inclusion in the people of God is no longer by physical descent, it is by faith. So these ethnic Jews are not the true Israel. Rather, according to Jesus, they are a synagogue of Satan. In the words of John MacArthur, those Jews who hated and rejected Jesus Christ were just as much Satan's followers as pagan idol worshipers. These are really strong words from Jesus the Jew. Really strong words. And they were blaspheming or slandering the true Israel of God, which is the church, both Jew and Gentile, those who are in Christ by faith. See, Judaism was an acceptable religion to Rome. Rome tended to view new religions with a great deal of skepticism and suspicion and hostility, but but established religions generally, they generally got a pass from the Roman government. Jews, for instance, were exempt from worshiping Caesar as a god. Instead, they were allowed to offer sacrifices to God in honor of Caesar which is really just an evasion of words. During the early years, Christianity enjoyed a degree of protection and freedom because in the eyes of Roman authorities, Christianity was just a Jewish sect and not a new religion. But as the first century wore on, and as the composition of the church shifted from predominantly Jewish to predominantly Gentile, and particularly after the Neronian persecution of the mid-60s AD, Christianity was increasingly viewed by the governing authorities as distinct from Judaism. And it seems that what was going on here in Smyrna was that the unbelieving Jews were, were aiding in this increased scrutiny and persecution at the hands of the Romans by making some false and slanderous allegations about the Christians to the Roman authorities. And this is not difficult for us to imagine because the New Testament is replete with instances in which the Jews in a particular city incited the governing authorities against the newborn church. It happens in Acts 13, it happens in Acts 14, it happens in Acts 17. Paul speaks of it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So what lies at the heart of of this hostility and jealousy of the synagogue over against the church? Well, it could have been a number of factors. It was probably due to the church's effectiveness in evangelism. 
It could have been due to the fact that a number of Jews from the synagogue were converted and were now following Christ. It could have been that the Jews felt that the Christians had in some manner stolen their history and their identity and their scriptures. For the New Testament teaches that the church, the believers in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, are the true Israel, the true people of God, the true children of Abraham, and the true heirs of the promise made to Abraham. And so if I'm an unbelieving Jew in the synagogue at Smyrna and the church over here is reaching into the Old Testament and, and is doing what Paul did, which is interpreting the promises made to Abraham as fulfilled in Christ and in those who are in Christ by faith, I'm going to feel like they're stealing my Bible. They're stealing my inheritance. They're stealing my history and identity. And it stirred up jealousy and hostility. And Jesus says, I know this, I see it, I know your sufferings, I know your tribulations, I know that you are destitute on account of my name, I know that you're being slandered all day long by a synagogue of Satan. He knew their sufferings in detail. He was not distant and he was not removed from their tribulation. And listen, he is not distant and he is not removed from yours. He knows your sufferings. Now you may feel like he's distant and removed because you pray and he doesn't deliver you immediately from your poverty, from your afflictions, from your anguish, from your grief, from your tragedy. You prayed that he would not die and he died. You prayed that, that the job would not come to an end and it, you got the pink slip. You prayed that, that your marriage would be restored and resolved and she still left. And that may make you feel as if God is distant and that he doesn't know and worse, that he doesn't care. But Jesus writes to the saints at Smyrna and he says to you this morning, I know your tribulations. I know them in detail. And I'm in control from the first to the last. And I have a plan for your pain. I have a purpose in your tribulation. Which brings us to the second truth that you need to hear from Christ. Which is that Jesus not only knows. Most evangelical Christians will affirm number one. We're going to take it a step further. Jesus not only knows. He plans your tribulations, which is vastly different than saying that he knows what's going to happen and he reacts in the moment. He knows because he plans. I'm going to tell you where I get that from. After telling the church that he knows their present tribulation, he then informs them of an even greater tribulation to come. So verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer, all right? He knows what they're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let me tell you what form I think this coming tribulation took, all right? Just imagine with me. When Paul first set foot in Smyrna, 
Okay, he was based in Ephesus and he took a short-term mission trip to the city of Smyrna, just traveling 35 miles up north the Aegean coast. And he sets foot in Smyrna some 35 years before this letter was written. As was his custom, he immediately went into that synagogue of Satan. He went into the synagogue of the Jews and he preached Christ as the hope of the prophets and the redeemer of Israel and the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament. And some in that synagogue heard his message. Their hearts were changed and they believed. But most rejected. And they became openly hostile towards Paul and his ministry. So having been rejected by the Jews, Paul did what he did in every city. He turned to the Gentiles. And he began to preach in the marketplace and from house to house. And among them, many believed. And Paul took this new group of converts, the Jews from the synagogue, the Gentiles from the, from the general populace, and he, he formed them, both Jew and Gentile, into a new covenant church. And he taught them, and he discipled them, and he appointed elders among them, and then he left. And he departed to go do the exact same thing in the next city, which was probably Pergamum. From the beginning then, life was tough for the saints in Smyrna, they were born in persecution. The Gentile converts of the church in Smyrna were no longer willing to participate in that civil religion that worshiped Caesar as a god and offered incense to his image and declared that he was Lord. So this put the Gentile converts out of favor with the local officials and the citizens of Smyrna. The Jewish converts were no longer welcome among the Jewish population because in the eyes of the Jews, they were committing blasphemy and apostasy by worshiping a dead Galilean as if he were the son of God. This hostility from the Jews continued as they went to the Roman authorities and accused the saints of a number of crimes and absurdities and disloyalties against the empire. It is documented that the early Christians were accused of cannibalism, well, why might that be? Because they ate the flesh and drank the blood of Christ. Of immorality, because they ate the flesh and drank the blood behind closed doors in something that was called a love feast, which to the vile mind meant something vile. They also made sure that the local Roman officials were aware that the church is not a Jewish sect. And therefore, they, they are not under the legal protections afforded by Roman law to Judaism. And so around 90 AD, all of these factors begin to converge in Smyrna, and a fierce persecution of Christians broke out, likely related to their refusal to worship the emperor. So the saints in Smyrna were rounded up, they were thrown into prison, and some of them were put to death. The persecution was brief, but it was intense. Children lost their fathers. Mothers lost their sons. It was 10 days of terror for the Smyrna church. But what demands our attention this morning is the fact that Jesus told the church ahead of time that it was going to happen. So not only does Jesus know our present sufferings, he knows our future sufferings, but more than that, much more, because there's one phrase in verse 10 that changes everything. Look again with me. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. That you may be tested indicates purpose. So this is purposeful persecution. Now the question is, whose purpose? The saints in Smyrna are going to be thrown into prison in order that their faith may be tested. Now Satan has no interest whatsoever in testing your faith. Satan's purpose is to destroy your faith. So whose purpose is being fulfilled in their imprisonment and death? God's purpose and God's plan. Jesus not only knows your tribulations, he plans your tribulations for the purpose that your faith may be tested and refined as by fire and found to be more precious than gold, resulting in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, so says Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. God plans your sufferings in order that your faith may be tested, refined through fire, the impurities and the weaknesses purged out of it so that you come out on the other side saying to live is Christ and to die is gain and Jesus receives praise and honor and glory when the sons of God who remain faithful unto death in his name are revealed on the last day. God has a purpose in your sufferings and it's for your good and for his glory. Satan's purpose in tribulation is to dismantle and to destroy your faith. God's purpose is to test and refine your faith. And God's purpose will prevail. This is stunning sovereignty for those who are willing to accept it. And it is comforting for every saint who suffers. Even satanic oppression in the form of imprisonment and death, that's what was going on in Smyrna, is planned and providentially governed by God for the fulfillment of his good purpose. Therefore, arguing from the greater to the lesser, so is cancer. So is depression. So is your unhappiness in your current job. So is your loss of your job. So is the eradication of your savings and a crash of the stock market. So is the struggles that are occurring in your marriage. So is the breakdown of your marriage. And every other tribulation you face is planned and providentially governed for your good and for his glory, or else the promise of Romans 8.28 means nothing. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
Jesus knows your tribulation. He plans your tribulation for your good, for his glory, that his supreme worth will shine as the stars of the heavens as you stand firm in faith and refuse to give in to the temptation of unbelief which says that God is not present, that he is not good, that he is not loving, that he does not care, and that he is an insufficient reward to to outweigh all of my present sufferings. Your tribulation is at the same time a test and a temptation. And you ought to view it that way. Finally. Third and final truth you need to hear from Christ is that eternal life belongs only to those who conquer tribulation. This is abundantly clear from the end of Jesus' message to the suffering saints of Smyrna. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Who will receive the crown of life? Only those who are faithful unto death. Who who will not be hurt by the second death? Only those who conquer. I think what Jesus is doing is making a reference to what we will read in the future in Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. Should be behind me. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, catch this, The second death has no power, which is the same promise Jesus makes to Smyrna. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So watch very closely. I take the crown of life that Jesus promises to be equivalent to coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years, which I believe is the time between his first coming and second coming. Crown equates to reigning. Life equates to resurrection. Who therefore receives the crown of life? According to Jesus, it's those who are faithful unto death in the imprisonment and the, and the persecution that's coming. According to Revelation chapter 20, it's those who are faithful unto death, those who are beheaded or martyred because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. But note this, at the end of Revelation 24, it's not only the martyrs and those who lost their heads who are granted the crown of life, it is all those who resist the beast and refuse his mark who come to life and reign with Christ. Therefore, I take this to mean that everyone who overcomes in the tribulation who overcomes, who conquers in the face of persecution, imprisonment, cancer, disease, poverty, job loss, temptations and seductions of the prostitute, 
slander and false accusations by those who say they are Jews and are not, grief and loss and pain, and every tribulation of this age that inheres within it a testing of your faith and a temptation to unbelief. Those who conquer through those tribulations, when they die, they come to life to reign with Christ. Everyone who remains faithful unto death has a share in the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of your spirit at death. Head gets lopped off, you wake up in heaven. And you await the second resurrection when your body will be raised, soul and body united, and you enter soul and body into the new heavens and the new earth. And over such as conquer the tribulation and overcome the trials... The second death has no power. What's the second death? Well, according to Revelation 20:14, it is judgment, hell, and the lake of fire. So the word of the risen and exalted Christ to you this morning, First Baptist Nix, is this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Whether the suffering is imprisonment and death, or the loss of your job and foreclosure, In this world, you will have tribulations, says Jesus to every one of his followers in John 16, 33. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, said Paul to the Galatian churches in Acts 14, 22. Don't be disturbed by the afflictions that have come upon you, but know that we have been destined for this, said Paul to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3. So I say to you, do not fear what you are, you are, you will be about to suffer. Why? Because Jesus knows your tribulation. Indeed, Jesus has planned your tribulation in order that your faith may be tested and refined and found more precious than gold. So do not fear what you are about to suffer. Believe, rest in your sovereign Savior. Believe that his promise is true. Believe that he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Believe that these light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Believe that to live is Christ and to die, no matter how that death comes, is gain. Believe that every ounce of pain that by the providential and sovereign will of God is placed into your life, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, every ounce of pain and every suffering that you experience will be repaid a thousandfold at the resurrection of the just. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. Believe and keep believing to the very end and you will receive the crown of life and over you the second death will have no power.